The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture this morning comes from Isaiah 54, 1-10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be, will, for the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, if you were to um, come to our house, many of you have, and looking forward to having more of you in the future, um, you would notice, if you were to come right now, the marks of a family with two boys um, all over our home, Uh, whether it's low or high, uh, there are streaks, gashes, gouges, and all sorts of things uh, that, that say, hey, this has really been lived in. Um, and it's been kind of one of those things over time, you just kind of see them more and more, especially during the summer. Some of you probably, I'm sure, have been in this kind of uh, vein during the summer where you kind of say, you know what, we need to do some kind of improvements or painting or adding something or other. Well, we've decided, hey, we need to paint a couple of our rooms because it's just a little much, a couple gouges that are a little too big for the eye to see and uh, fill in. So we, we've <clears throat> asked someone to come paint. Well, um, many of you have had that kind of thing. You kind of set up a contract. You kind of say, okay, well, we come paint a couple of these rooms for this. You sign something. There's this kind of paint we want, yada, yada. Even, even still, just this last week as well, we had somebody come in <clears throat> and inspect our roof, which we didn't ask for. I don't know if you ever have this, where somebody walks around in a neighborhood, and they kind of look at your roof, and they ring your doorbell, and they're like, hey, I'll, I'll get up on your roof and check it out and, for you, and they kind of try and lure you in to say, hey, we can, we can fix this. We can talk to your insurance company and get you an entire new roof. It'll be great, you know. What's your deductible? You know, and we're kind of like, uh, I don't do, do we need a roof right now? You know, what, what, what is the similarity, right? We, we all live in this kind of world. But we, they're entering into a contract, right? They want you to move into this kind of contract negotiation. So we're bound, say, you have these services you can give me, but I'll pay you this in order for you to take care of these things. We live in this day in, day out. <clears throat> well, when we read this passage, one of the interesting things about it 
is it uses similar language. And you probably didn't catch it because we don't use this word much, but there's a word called covenant. And the word covenant really is somewhat similar to that. It's a contract. It's something binding between two people. But the difference between the way the Bible uses it And in some ways, they would recognize this. If you were someone of ancient times reading Isaiah, you would catch some of that language. You'd say, oh, okay, so there's this real contract between God and His people. But the difference is deeper than that. Uh, David Brooks wrote an article even about contracts and covenants in our day. Uh, He's a a New York Times op-ed writer. He wrote, how covenants make us. Listen to what he says about this. People in a contract provide one another services. But people in a covenant delight in offering gifts. Out of love of country, soldiers offer the gift of their service. Out of love of their craft, teachers offer students the gift of their attention. And what what Brooks is getting at in this article is that if we actually saw the difference between what a contract is and a covenant is, it, it would change the way we see not only our relationships, but it would transform things economically, socially. What he's saying is a contract is a negotiation between two people. A covenant is a binding. It's where you enter it in. And actually, where we see this even more so is in wedding ceremonies. When I tell people that we uh, worship here, the number one thing, I think this is like the number one or number two place for people to get married. They always say, even if they don't know what, they're like, Christ present, I don't know what that is. Scarrett Bennett, oh, dude, I, I got married there. Or I went to a wedding there. Like, everybody knows that this is like a wedding venue. And that's what you see when you see ceremonies, you see vows being taken. It's a covenant. It's a binding, not just of two people on a contract. Hey, let's do, let's do this thing and like try and work this thing out, right? But people entering into relationship. And that's what Brooks is getting at. He's actually saying that it's different than a contract. It's a delighting in. And so what the Bible does in this is drawing out the fact that God doesn't enter into a contract with His people. That's what His people have thought that He's done for ages. I think it probably can feel that way often with us, right? That relationship, negotiation with God. What God is coming back around and saying to His people, and notice we sang a song about this. It's not just a, a, this isn't a passage for just one of us. It's for all of us. That God says, I am delighting in you. I don't just enter into a contract to to work this out to where you can like carry my name forward. I actually want you to know me, and I want you to know how I delight in you. So in this passage, Isaiah 54, we're going to look at a couple things and how God teases out this idea of covenant in His people and for us to know how He delights in us, how His relationship to us is deeper than just a contract, but but a covenant relationship. First is that he remembers his promises. He remembers his promises. He remembers, that's part of a covenant, the deeper tenets of it. Second, though, is there's a real love involved. And finally, there's, this covenant lasts. It endures, because that's the question we always have. You know, it talks about at the very beginning of this, it's actually broken in neat sections. A pastor, a preacher like me loves that when God already in the passage just kind of lays out like in these verses, in these verses, in the, it's perfect. There it is for you. In the first three verses, he talks about remembering and he uses this language to, to tease out for his people that he keeps his promises. He remembers his people. So Isaiah, just to paint that picture for you, is a, is, is a portrait of 66 books laid out over almost a timeline of what's going on with the people of God. 
And the people of God, this is way past, this is kind of a, a time between the big, you know, maybe many of us, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you may know who King David is. Who's, that was like the pinnacle of Israel's history. You know, they had this kingdom and his son Solomon who built this amazing temple. But between that and then when Jesus came is this really sordid history where the people of God were wrecked. They began worshiping all sorts of things. They actually were exiled and and captured by Assyria and then another superpower called Babylon, and really decimated. And what we're reading here is right on the end of their exile from Babylon. Babylon has taken the people, and they are in exile. And they're asking the question right now, does this matter to us anymore? Like the people of God are saying, does this relationship, this, this covenant we had, with God, is it really binding? Like, does he remember it? Because right now, it sure does not look like it. I, when I talk about exile, it may be something unfamiliar, very unfamiliar to us. Maybe you've traveled in other countries and heard this, but I was, I was researching, like, okay, I want to understand better what exile is like. And I've came across current stories of exiles in a number of countries and what that really is what it means to actually be forced from your home and live in a foreign land that is not yours. Listen to a couple of these. We feel stateless. When my wife and children ask about our future, I don't know what to tell them. I feel that later we can hope to start a new life in another country, but who will take us? That was from one family in Thailand. Here's another family in a whole other country. I came here to escape the war between my government soldiers and the militia. As a Christian, I spoke out against the war, and this made me a target for the militias. A week after I fled to Burundi, I heard that my younger brother had been killed. I still don't know what happened to him. I came here with my wife, our three young children, and a nephew. I heard a bit later that my house had been burned down. We were interviewed many times, and we arri- where we arrived, we were refugees. But being a refugee, it's incredibly difficult to support yourself and your family. These are not like stories of past. This is happening right now in our world. And I don't even know if you know this, but in our very city is home to countless refugees who have come here. Nashville, Tennessee, you wouldn't think that. But Nashville, Tennessee is a home of countless refugees. And for us, it's very foreign to us to know what that's like to be forced maybe from our home, to be driven out, what that experience is like. But what he's using here is to try and tease out that language in verses 1 through 3. to see, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one. He's using language of the former people who are the foundation of their relationship to God, Abraham and Sarah. And he's saying, you have encountered what it's like to be barren, to be forgotten. What it means to live in exile in this connection, it means that you are stripped of everything that you think could make you you. It gives you identity. It gives you home. It gives you worth. It gives you safety. All those things that you and I fear that if it was taken, maybe many of us have not encountered yet if it was taken. Maybe you have. Maybe health or a job or something of that nature. But imagine all of it at once being stripped. Not just one thing. That's being in exile. 
And he refers it back to this language that they would know all the way back thousands of years before with Abraham and Sarah who were far older, way older to have any children. And they use this, God uses this language to say, you know what it's like to be in that place and, and want and long and not have it. And to be promised something and it not be given. And God yet uses language here to draw it out and say, but I am going to give you far more than you think. I'm going to be that one who promises come forth and deliver. He moves into that. He even uses desolate in these words to emotionally draw out of them what it's like. To say, I want to meet you in those places where you do not think I will meet you. Where you have been crying aloud, you will sing. And you will, you will see that. And he even uses this language of verse 2 of enlarging your tent, making it larger. <clears throat> of making all that, those, those ways against the odds that you think that your life would grow. Look, I want to remind you of something real quick. <clears throat> this is not, again, just a picture for us as individuals. This is for us as a whole. That God is talking to all of us in this room. That his glory, his purpose for us is not just to strip us away, but to build back up. He says everything that you think that you want to build your life around that you've tried to do has failed you. And even the things that you have wanted that are so good for you, that are to build you up and that you know that I have promised you to have more and more God is going to give to you. He is not going to hold back. Notice he says in verse 3, you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will be people in the desolate cities. Look, <clears throat> this is language that can be very raw for many of us in this room. And for others of us in this room, we may not even know what that is. But what God is getting across is that his promises go beyond what we think or imagine. In the ways that we want to be met and want to have him give to us, he is not withholding without him reaching into the places where we find the crying out and where he wants to lift us up out of those pits. To not hold back. The people of God in this have struggled, have gone through so much. And what he uses there is to say, I remember you. Isn't that what it means when we feel like we've been withheld from or something's been taken from us? Is the first thing we want to say is, God, do you remember me? Where are you? Where is your face? Why are you hiding from me? And the very first thing he wants to remind them is it's stretching all the way back against the odds that he is saying, the proof of you knowing that you are his is that we exist even now. The fact that the promise given to Abraham and Sarah so long ago, who were never meant to have any children, against the odds, they were given the promise and their children wouldn't just be of their own, it would be us 
We are actually a fulfillment of that. You are a picture of fulfillment even sitting in this pew thinking and knowing that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, the Bible is actually saying that this promise is wider than just our own flesh and blood. It is beyond that. We are all brought in as children, adopted sons and daughters, brought in as His own, that He does not forget you, and He hasn't forgotten you. And you can cry out to Him and know that His His remembering of you, keeping those promises, goes far beyond the things that we think will prove to us that He hears us. It's incredibly difficult to to look at these passages and look at our relationship with God as anything else but that. This was perfect what God sets up next, even by saying that it's not just that He remembers us, because that could be one of those things of like, okay, this is Stacy trying to encourage us. This is a passage where, oh, okay, these promises, He keeps His promises. But what about the things in my life that I don't see? He talks about a real love. See, the next few verses overflow into that, verses 4 through 8. And he begins even by saying, fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. You will not be disgraced. You will not forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, and you will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. He begins to work out these opposites, the maker and husband. And and there's a really important reason for that. Because in our relationship with God over time, when we begin to forget everything that He has said He will do, and imagine them in this place, they're in exile, they're about to be released, but even when they go back, we see places where they go back to their homes and there's just nothing there. And they have to rebuild and nothing is as good as it was. And they continue to say, God, are you for real? Are you really going to fulfill this? How does he remind them in the present that he will fulfill what he said? He does so by saying, I'm not just your maker, I'm your husband. There's one thing to say, I'm your maker. It means I'm the one who's made you. I'm the one who's who's intentionally crafted you. But, But it can easily stop there for us. There's a thing that today that's very prevalent. It's called moral therapeutic deism. Deism is an idea, actually, uh, it's, it's a worldview. And I don't know if you know it, but you may have heard it before. It's, it's deeply embedded in us more than you think. It, it's the fact that deism is that there is a creator, and yet he's a clockmaker. He basically wound up the world, and he kind of set it to its own pace. He kind of said, hey, I'm going to create everything, I'm going to set it on its course, but it's really up to you and how you navigate it. That's deism. That's the idea of, okay, yeah, maybe there's a God. Maybe there's a, a man upstairs who does kind of language. Maybe there's somebody that, that we bow to. Maybe there's a higher power. But it's all on me to deal with it. And that's what's really difficult with moral therapeutic deism is it's kind of its own difference now that we've taken and Christianized. And in some sense, this is where we say, yeah, God is good. God is great. I go to church. I do these things. And yet, if I'm just good, maybe God will give me what I want. Or, or maybe if I just have these morals in line, then maybe I, can, maybe I can be a good person. But I keep kind of God at arm's length, 
Because I really think this Christian thing is more about me being good and having things in place than it is me being really in connection and relationship with God. See, what he does next is he says, your maker is your husband. What does that do? That turns it on its head. It begins to say that you have an actual relationship with him. He binds himself to you. If you notice the language here, it sounds like a real relationship. He says in verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth she has cast off. Says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I gather you. Think about that. The arguments, the fights coming apart, coming together. That's what's going on in this passage. It is the anger is the sadness, it is the grieving. This is a real relationship that God comes into our life. It's not a, hey, I'm gonna keep you at arm's length. It's not I'm gonna wind up the clock and let it go because this is where we want God to be. Because what is so hard and painful is when he is that close, when he says, I'm going to bind myself to you. What a husband does in this passage, what a wife does when they take those vows, they bind each other. But for us, what is so difficult is we forget the fact that we really need that intimacy to change that hardness of our heart, that difficulty, that pain that we have gone through. Those things that we have suffered, whether for years or for days, whatever it may be. And so we keep God at arm's length to say, I can deal with this. That's our moral therapeutic deism. It's our way of, of trying to soothe ourselves without being in that close connection that can di- dis- just attack the, the, the need. It's false intimacy. It, it, one, of, one of the best songs I think of this is from Radiohead. I don't know if you remember Radiohead. They had a great song called Fake Plastic Trees. Listen to what they said in this song. Her green plastic watering can for her fake Chinese rubber plant and the fake plastic earth that she bought from a rubber man in a town full of rubber plans to get rid of itself. And it wears her out. It wears her out. It wears her out. And the last stanza says this. She looks like the real thing. She tastes like the real thing. My fake plastic love. Talk about a beautiful poetic version of where Israel is in this moment, trying to make sense of any sort of intimacy that God has to come in. It's not enough for him to say, your maker. This is why Paul in the New Testament, if you ever read the New Testament, there's a book called Acts. And Acts is a narrative account of the people taking the good news of Jesus in the cities. And when they do, how does Paul take it? He says, you know a maker. He goes to people that have no idea about Isaiah or Jesus, or God, and what does he do? He says, you know a maker. You have things all around you that tell you and point you to the maker. What you need to know is that he's also your husband. He also binds himself to you. He comes to you in intimacy to show you that you have fake plastic love, to show you what true love is, what roots out shame, What breaks the cycle of shame and disgrace? How can God say, fear not, you will not be ashamed, be not confounded? How can he say that? Because he comes in in his relationship to break it. And he says, I mean, talk about a real relationship. Listen to what he says here. 
He even says in verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. Isn't that what we experience when we say, God, do you remember me? We need to be reminded that God has a real relationship with us. He's not a God that's just playing or messing with you. He's the one that actually shows you what it's like to have good, healthy intimacy and to know and to make identity through everything else. Isn't that what it is? You make sense of this world through an identity, right? That's what we do. God is trying to remind them and us, what is our identity? What do we make sense of life through? That's what marriage is. That's what a, a marriage does. It, it changes, in fact, that whole dynamic. I've performed literally like three or four weddings in the last few months, and so I've been ingrained in my brain these vows again of what God does. And it's incredible to me to think about that whole dynamic of that, that covenant ceremony, that ceremony where you have this groom at the end and the bride is coming to him at the end. And yet, one of my favorite parts is, is, is to take a glance at the bride but really watch the groom's face. And usually it's just crumpled <laughs> and just total just delight, tears, cannot believe that this glorious person is coming down the aisle to him. And here's what I remember talking to someone who was uh, in an office of mine who said that they were not a Christian and I was learning about their ceremony. And he said, well, my future wife and I, because of our, our just the nature of our relationship, she's decided she's going to wear, and, and people make these jokes, this is not a joke, she and I are all, both going to wear all black. Because we feel as though, and this is someone who's not, would not consider themselves a Christian and had ceremony. They said, because we see so much of what we've done in our relationship as just a train wreck that we don't feel like we could wear white at all. She doesn't in particular. And you know, that's where most of us feel like we are. I mean, maybe even you're here and you would consider yourself not a Christian. Maybe you're coming back into a church and you're asking that question and you're asking the nature of relationship even in, in, in marriage already. Maybe you, you feel that because you and I both know that we think we should be wearing all black. This is what God is telling them is you no longer have shame of your youth. Look, all the choices that you've made, all the things, we sang at the very beginning of the service, Arise, My Soul, Arise. We should probably sing it every song through. Because that song is saying, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. Because you and I are not going to be wearing black when Jesus returns. We think we are supposed to. We think we deserve it. Or we think we've brought it on ourselves. And yet the husband says this. He says, he says this incredible line. In overflowing anger in verse 8, for a moment I hid my face from you, just as he would in any relationship. And why does God hide his face? So that she knows the difference between fake intimacy 
and relationship and true because what does he do? But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you and gather you up. There's no amount of wearing anything that can transform your heart there. God is putting you in dazzling white. And against every odd and and everything that you think arrays you before God, before the one who is, as it says, the Holy One and yet your Redeemer. Do you see what he's doing? The Holy One that no one could stand in front of. You couldn't stand. We would all be wearing black if that was the case, if it ended there. But he says, the Holy One and your Redeemer. I want to paint for you briefly the biblical picture that he's setting up. This is language from a covenant and the prophets called Hosea. And I don't know if you've ever read this book before. It is one of the most potent, beautifully powerful, gospel-driven books ever of what God does for us. He calls Hosea to marry a prostitute. He call, God says to Hosea, one of his prophets, you will marry a prostitute. And it shows their relationship. It is rocky and rough. And the reason that God wants him to do that is to say, I want you to have a tangible, real picture that when you preach to the people, you know exactly what you're preaching. This is what it's like for me to be in relationship with you. And the most beautiful part of that is how does their relationship come back? Gomer is her name, and Gomer has gone down such this path of wandering with false intimacy. Talk about fake plastic trees. Her love has been everywhere. So much so that she finds herself at an auction, stripped bare, standing in front of a, a, a huge crowd, normally in those days with their back turned or their head covered. And as she stood there, she would hear names and numbers of things cried out because she was being sold. And in the book of Hosea, you see it. You actually get to read it. There's a moment where Hosea's voice is heard. And can you imagine Gomer hearing her husband's voice in the crowd, literally buying her back? What is going through her head? Why is he here? What would he want with me anymore? Our marriage is a sham. Why is that? No. That's a redeemer. See, this table right here is exactly what that means. You want to know what a tangible reality that you have in this relationship with God as a husband It's right in front of you. See, the vows are these. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. This I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses, according to God's holy word, whose death took on the broken promises that we made. 
At the end of this passage, there's one phrase that says something a little bit odd. And the reason it does is because it's pointing to this very day. In verse 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Do you know what that covenant of peace is? This. You actually get to taste the reality of the covenant of God with you. It's no contract. No contract does this. I guarantee you, nobody I'm entering in a contract with who's working on my house has ever thought of this. Only God has. Till death do us part. When you taste this bread and you taste this wine and juice, you are being reminded that even in your pain, even in the ways that you have been forsaken, in the relationships that, where you feel and the relationship with God and others, that He will not depart from you. He will not. He has painted it in blood and in body as you come to this table. Let's stand together.